We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today. So we're taking a little break from Matthew. So if you'll flip over there with me to Philippians. And as you turn there, I spent a year of my life uh, as a football player. One year. Seventh grade, 18, at Strzok Intermediate School. Starting left guard, backup middle linebacker. And I remember that first time in practice when I finally got inserted as the starting middle linebacker and, and the, the starter was gone. He was doing something. He probably was in trouble or something. And, and I, I, man, I was there. I watched, I watched as the play started. The play developed. I'm watching the running back's eyes. I know exactly where he's headed. And as the hole in the offensive line starts to open up, I make my move. I'm gonna blow the play up. I'm gonna be the practice hero, Hall of Fame, um, and, and just as I get this clear vision of, of the running back, I see him, he's making his way to me, it hit me. Rather, a freight train named Sean Forrester hit me. I hadn't seen the fullback. And as I laid on my back, trying to figure out if I would be able to ever breathe again, I stared up into the sky, Coach Gabbard looking down at me, um, and I thought to myself, I really do like basketball. And, I, and, and though my football career ended uh, after that one uh, blessed season, uh, my basketball days continued on, so ne- never fear. Uh, as you can, you look at me and probably think, he's probably a basketball player. Um, but I won't tell you with my, uh, all the tales, or bore you with all the tales of uh, athletic wizardry in my past. But there's something I do remember uh, from, my, from my time and my days uh, playing sports, that conditioning was important, so yeah, time in the gym, uh, sprints, jumping, time with the weights, bench press, incline, lap machines, pull-ups, the whole thing. Uh, but there was a special day, a special day that you, you didn't work out. And that day was game day. Because you needed your strength on game day. Uh, you needed all your energy. You warmed up, but you didn't, you didn't go do a full workout. This was what the workouts were for. They were to get you ready for the game. And if you spent all the activity and energy on a workout, then you'd be useless for the game. You'd be, by the fourth quarter, you'd be, you'd be drained. You'd have nothing left. And, and all the preparation in the world would mean nothing then if you couldn't endure to the end. And this morning, we're gonna look at Philippians chapter four. And all throughout this book, Paul has been telling the church, stand firm, run the race. But he also knows that there's things that will cause them and cause us to flame out. Uh, dis, disunity, anxiety, prayerlessness, things that will sap our strength and lead us to weariness. And so I want us to begin today by reading uh, from Philippians 4. So would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul loved the Philippians. He ached for them. He missed them. He longed to be with them. And like, like a good dad, he desperately wanted them to stand firm. But they were like a lot of us are, tired, anxious. And so the question is, how will we endure? How will we not lose heart? How will we not be destroyed by our anxieties and our concerns? So we're gonna answer that question, how will we endure? And I'm gonna give you four ways. We're gonna endure by, uh, we're gonna endure together. We're gonna endure in radical rejoicing. We're gonna endure by thankful prayer and we're gonna endure by looking to the one who endured. So let's pray together. Father, we do praise you today. We do crown you. We acknowledge your kingship over us. And we ask today that as we, as we search the scriptures that you would indeed search us that you would know us, and that, you would, that you would help root out distrust that we have toward you or lack of faith, lack of obedience. And God, would you spur us on to follow you, to treasure Jesus. And God, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So let's, uh, let's set the background here. It had been about 30 years since uh, since Paul came to faith. And about 11 years since he planted this church in this little Roman colony called Philippi, uh, some epic scenes happened here. If you remember in the book of Acts, uh, Lydia uh, was, was the first conversion. Um, and, and shortly after that, Paul and Silas uh, were there and they're on this missionary journey and they, they cast a demon out of a, a young girl who's t- telling fortunes. And People didn't like that because they were profiting off this girl, so they, they had them beaten and thrown into jail. Um, and, and that very night, they're singing and praising God in jail, praying to him. And what happens? An earthquake, right? And the jailer and his whole family come to faith because of this. It's this miracle of, that God has done. Um, what a cool story. Um, so fast forward like a decade later, um, and, and Paul hasn't been back now still for a few, a few years. And I can just imagine as they're, I, I love to think that as they're reading this letter, they would have read it to the church, to the gathered church, um, that probably that jailer and his grown kids, they're there. They're, they're, they're listening. They're receiving. They've grown in maturity and they've walked with God. And now they're hearing what Paul has to say. Paul loves these guys and they love him. Paul had suffered a lot since then, though. Uh, Now he's in prison in Rome. This time, he's been there nearly two years. When the earthquake happened, right, with with Silas, I mean, it was like they're in one day, out the next. Uh, But this time, two years nearly in jail. And he's had a lot of time to think about the Philippians, how thankful he is that he's not having to correct issues in them. It seems seems like the the church at Philippi is one of the only churches uh, where Paul really doesn't seem to have a major beef. No, no major theological issue, uh, no strange doctrine, no crazy problems. And so he writes to his good friends and he says this in verse one. He says, so then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. You can almost hear how he's homesick for them. He, he, he's proud of them. 
Have you ever had that moment, parents? Do you, have you ever had that moment where you step back and you, you just, you saw something in your kid, some degree of faith or maturity, and you're just like, man, they're getting it. They're getting it, praise God. Uh, you long for this, right? You wanna see them keep going, to press on. Likewise, for, for a past a pastor, one of the greatest joys is to see uh, the sheep, to see those in the church uh, loving Jesus. When we see you sacrifice for each other, to, when you pursue Christ, when you minister to one another. So he says, my, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. This is what I find myself praying for my kids a lot, um, that I'm, I'm asking God almost every night, God, will you just help them to become a young man, a young woman who, who love you more than anything else, who pursue you more than anything else. That's what Paul wants here. That's what he wants for this church. He wants them to endure, stand firm, to stay with Jesus, to keep running after him, to know him, to love him. So how will we stand firm? How will we endure to the end? So here it is. You ready for this? The big reveal? I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's kind of the, like a twist, right? Um, not what you expect. This is how you stand firm. Um, so we need to, you want to, you know, stand firm and endure in the Lord? You need to endure together. So Euodia and Syntyche need to agree. So first of all, I think we read this and we just go, what? Like, where is this even coming from? Who are these people? Why is this here? First, we know these are, are women's names. Uh, so if, if you're, you know, in, if you're looking to, you know, have a baby soon, think about it, Euodia. Um, that, that's unique. It's 2019. Everybody wants unique names. Um, uh, but he keeps going to verse three. Uh, I, er, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So what do we know about them? First, we know they're real people. They would have been present here when the church uh, read this letter, uh, which I can't imagine that, I can imagine that being a very awkward moment um, to, to have a letter read out loud to the public and all of a sudden you're a part of the letter. Um, I just wanna encourage Bob and Sally to get their marriage problems figured out. Yikes, he just said our names. Um, but, but what else do we know? We know they're, they're Christians. Paul says their names are written in the book of life. Um, many commentators suggest that these were probably very important people in the church at Philippi, probably very likely hosts um, of, of house churches in Philippi. So what's, what's their disagreement? Is it, is it a doctrinal issue? Uh, it doesn't seem to be. Uh, we have seen how Paul handles doctrinal issues and he, he definitely doesn't call false teachers, uh, fellow partners who contend for the gospel. That doesn't seem to be how he addresses a false doctrine. He doesn't call them out for sin. Um, and we know usually when there's a sin that needs to be addressed, Paul doesn't usually hold back from, from addressing it, from saying it. It doesn't appear that these women are malcontents at all. They aren't problems they're servants, they're leaders, they're partners in ministry, fellow soldiers with Paul for the gospel. In fact, he, he doesn't even seem to be admonishing them for their disagreement at all. He's, he's honoring them. And yet he's making the point clear, you've got to come together. This is, a, this is not a matter of small importance. These differences need to be resolved. These women need to be reconciled. So what is the issue? I, I don't know. I'm gonna guess it's something more important than the, 
Popeyes versus Chick-fil-A. That's been the latest one in uh, the United States, apparently. Um, but it was divisive enough that Paul knew about it, and it was enough that he needed to mention it. Um, but I think more likely, there were probably not just these women, there were probably others there who needed to know, you should be reconciled. And not, not, not just them, in fact, we should see ourselves in these women. These aren't false teachers, these aren't wolves. Even the strongest among us can sabotage unity within the church. Paul's saying, if you wanna endure, if you wanna stand firm, you've gotta do it together. Endure together. Agree in the Lord. That's literally what, the, he's, he's, literally what he's saying is, uh, be of the same mind, have the same mind. He said that previously too, right? Have this mind that's in you, the, the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve. He's saying to them, you need to serve. You need to serve each other. Give up your right to win. Humble yourself. Why? Because, because your names are written in the book of life. You have eternal value. So count each other as more significant than yourself. Just as Jesus had mercy on you, have mercy. And so how, how does Paul tell him to resolve it? He says, he brings it to the community, right? He says in verse three, I ask you, true partner, to help these women. He appoints a mediator, maybe, maybe a, a, a leader or an, an elder, somebody to get in the middle of it. People debate who this actually is. I actually will make, I, I'm gonna make the case um, that this is a personal name. This is like, this is like a, seems to me, this is like second person, singular. Uh, this is addressing a person. It's even in, the, in your footnotes, a lot of, your, a lot of the translations we'll have in the footnotes, um, that this, this actually just could be the name of a person called Sisygos. There's another great name. That's a boy name, I'm pretty sure. So here we, we've got lots of names. Um, Paul saying, Sisygos, brother, you know what's going on here. Help these women. How many of you have seen uh, personal conflict torpedo a church? It is so easy for minor issues, issues of preference or style, maybe issues of, of personal offense to create fractures within a church. Even a great church, the healthiest church, will eventually have conflict. Relationships can become frayed and in need of reconciliation. If it hasn't happened for you yet here, just stick around for a little while, it will. And before you know it, bitterness can take root. Reconciliation within the family of God is so important. Important enough that Paul ties it to endurance. Important enough that we should seek mediators and counselors to help us. And it's eternal enough that we're, we're dealing with other people whose names are written in the book of life. This isn't just someone you're dealing with today. This is someone who you are connected to for eternity. These, these women are important. They're important to Paul, to the church, and to God and their agreement matters. So Sisygus, brother, mediate for them. It's a biblical thing to have a mediator, a counselor. Jesus is our mediator. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. Let's not let the world co-opt those terms. When you see brothers and sisters or families for that matter who are embroiled in conflict, maybe not speaking to each other, we aren't just to sit on the side and watch. We're to enter in and to help. As those who have been reconciled to the Father by Christ, we must seek the reconciliation of our brothers and sisters. For you today, is, is there disunity between you and a brother or a sister? Maybe you've just kind of gotten used to a certain strained relationship that's just gonna be strained. Deal with it today. Make a call, schedule a lunch. During communion today, go, go find someone, deal with this disunity. Maybe you need a mediator a missional community leader, a pastor, an elder, 
a counselor, a friend, but you are fellow laborers for the gospel, eternally the family of God. So be reconciled. And this is one way we will endure. How else will we endure? We will endure with radical rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. What a sentence. Be joyful in God always. This would have been way easier if he had just stopped before always. Uh, Be joyful in God frequently. That sounds easier. Rejoice when the job is right, when the kids obey, when the money is plentiful and the conflicts are gone. And yet he says it twice in case you missed it. I'll say it again. Be joyful in God. Yes, even when the cancer diagnosis hits. Rejoice. On the surface, this sounds a little bit bit like the the theology of Bobby McFerrin, right? Uh, The the don't worry, be happy guide to rejoicing. Um, and, And maybe for some of you, that's exactly the kind of stuff you have heard and seen. Maybe this is that sort of goofy, feel good, prosperity laden, mumbo jumbo you've maybe heard and, and from other Christians or from other churches. Happy words, but not a lot of substance. Trite sayings, kind of a bumper sticker, uh, Christian faith. It doesn't matter what happens to you, just be happy. But that's not at all what this is. Because wh- remember, where is Paul? He's two years into a jail sentence, right? This is a guy who he's got no home. He's making regular trips to places where people hate him, all to proclaim the risen Christ. He has no money, no 401k, no no Netflix, suffering shipwrecked and, and, and being beaten. He's opposed everywhere. And he writes to his dear friends with this shackle attached to his leg. And he says, you can rejoice always. Slightly different flavor than, than don't worry, be happy. See, rejoicing isn't just commanded by God. It's always possible because of God. Why? Because it's not joy in a circumstance. It's joy in the Lord. He is always worthy. He is always good, always loving, always sovereign. He always knows what is best. The world will constantly tempt us to despair. And the temptation for the Philippian church would have been been great to despair. There's tremendous persecution. They're seeing how it's gone for Paul and and they've gotta be fearing the same fate. Maybe maybe we're gonna be imprisoned, exiled, maybe even worse. And here's Paul with his, his chains rattling, saying, rejoice. And he goes further in verse five and he, uh, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. I always thought this was a strange verse in the middle of the passage. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid, we, we sang a song. Some of you may know it. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There you go. All right, yeah. There you go. I heard somebody. I was waiting for the clap. We, we did the cool claps in church when, uh, back in the 90s. Um, but there was, there was never a, a verse that, as far as I can remember in that song that said, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Um, it's a really awkward, it's a, it's a very strange thing to say here, it seems. And it's even weirder when you read it in some other translations. In the ESV, it says, let your reasonableness be known. Let everyone see how super reasonable you are. He's super reasonable. <laughs> Um, uh, but it's, it's kind of one of those places where the, the, the English words don't really 
encapsulate and aren't really getting the full meaning um, of, of this idea. Um, and you can see it in, in the different choices that translations make. Uh, gentleness, graciousness, reasonableness, gentle spirit, moderation, consideration, forbearance. There's, like, there's all this range of words. Um, but Cal- Calvin calls it equanimity, meaning someone who's in the midst, who's calm in the midst of chaos, which kind of sounds like Jesus, right? Jesus sleeping on the boat in the storm. Uh, the commentators kind of settle somewhere around this, this idea of calmness, of steadiness, contentment. Um, a couple of my favorites, Spurgeon, Spurgeon calls this a holy carelessness, um, which sounds strange. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We're, we're not, not that we don't care, but that we lack, we lack having cares. There's a carelessness, a holy carelessness. Tim Keller uh, calls this a radical evenness. And, and that's what it is. This is radical. This is a radical rejoicing. I think a great way to see it is when Jesus sends out uh, the disciples in Luke 10. They have just come back from, uh, from the mission that Jesus has sent them on. And, and, and Luke says this about them. He says, they, they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're going, this is amazing. We cast out demons. This is great. And Jesus doesn't look at him and go, wasn't it awesome? No, he, he turns it around on them. And he says, look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here, here's what he means. I'm glad, I'm glad you had a great experience. I'm glad everything went well today but there will be a day where it won't. He knows what they're going to face soon. For some, it will be jail and persecution like Paul. For others, it will be being beaten, maybe even being crucified. Casting out demons is great, but it's not ultimate. Don't rejoice in your circumstance as though that's the main thing. Circumstances can't be the ground for our rejoicing. Because then rejoicing can't be always. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. We, we, we don't mourn as, as the world mourns, do we? We don't grieve as the world does. Why? Because when, it, when a Christian mourns, we can say, man, I hate that this happened. I really, do, I really do hate that this happened. This is a sad thing. But nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing can take us from him. So, so my sadness can only go so deep. And then on the flip side, we also don't rejoice as the world rejoices. When something good happens, when we experience success, when we buy a new home, we finally hit that target weight. The heart of, of a Christian goes, okay, hey, this is, this is great. I love it. It's awesome. What a gift. But I have no promise that this will last. It will, and it could be gone tomorrow. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is the kind of person that you want to be around, right? When difficulty hits them and you go visit them in the hospital, they're the ones reminding you that God is still good, that he's taking care of them. They're not wallowing in misery and complaining when Yodia and Syntyche are disagreeing, what does he remind them of? That their names are written in the book of life. 
For some of you today, I, I want you to think, what, what wonderful thing in, in your life right now is, is currently, what great, what amazing blessed circumstance in your life right now is the ground of your rejoicing? What thing can you not stop thinking about that you're, that you're just so excited about? I wanna encourage you, rejoice, not because of that wonderful thing today, but because your name is written in heaven. Thank him, thank him for that. Or for others of you today, what, what devastating circumstance, what fear is clouding everything? Even while you sang today, that fear and that sadness just crept in to you, I'd say rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. God is with you. Nothing of ultimate value can actually be taken from you. Now, this doesn't mean we're robots. Like, we still grieve. Yes, we grieve. We experience excitement when our kid hits a home run. That's exciting. We don't go, that's, that's good, but it's not uh, ultimate. That's not what's most important. Well done on the home run and all, but... Um, right, we're not that. Um, but, but radical rejoicing is able to remember this is not the thing. All of my grieving and all of my celebrating then can be set in its proper place. So how's that possible? Back to verse five. Let your graciousness be known to all. How? The Lord is near. This seems almost abrupt, right? Just the Lord is near. Just a quick statement. Um, no transition. Okay, so what, what does this mean? Near how? Uh, near in space? Near in time? Uh, that, this word can kind of mean both. Uh, when, when someone's near, that means they might, they might be soon, here soon, or it might just be in there standing near me. Um, and I think he's kind of, Paul's kind of playing on both of these ideas. The Lord is near to you. He's with you right now. You won't be overcome. He will strengthen you, sustain you. He'll hold you in difficulty. His spirit is transforming, renewing, instructing you. I know, yeah, the Lord is also near. He's coming soon. His coming is at hand. He's almost here. All the suffering you're enduring, it won't last forever. This pain may last for the night, but final joy will come. These persecutions may persist, but Jesus will come and make all things right. He'll set it all, make it all new. Do you ever have days, maybe weeks, maybe even, maybe even much of, a, of an entire year where you just stop and go, I'm, I'm not home here. All is, all is not right in the world, in my world. And, and maybe it, it never will be. Just me? I'm the only one? Great. Um, even on a morning like this, right? Where we're gathered with God's people, singing and remembering God's goodness together, with our brothers and sisters that we love, the realities of current struggles often don't, we're not even, they're not even able to fade away from our mind. Maybe, maybe yours do, mine, mine often don't, even, even here, even now. But the Lord is near. He is with you now. And he will be with you in the future. There is an eternity coming where, where Jesus will make all things right for those who are his. Where security will be like the air that we breathe where tears and pain and anxiety will be long in the rearview mirror. So when bad things in this life happen, rejoice in the Lord. When good things happen in this life, rejoice in the Lord. 
When bad things continue to happen, rejoice in the Lord always, for the Lord is near. And he goes on, check out verse six. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Okay, so come on, Paul. Like, why don't you be a little more all-inclusive with this? Uh, don't worry about anything, but in everything. This is, uh, this is too far. Okay, rejoice always. Got it. Uh, but worry about nothing? This is what we do. We worry. We are anxious. Don't worry about anything, about nothing. Some of us can't imagine an entire hour without anxiety creeping in. And this word is funny because it's, it's, it's a specific type of worry that focuses more on self. The, the word is actually the same as the word uh, for the way that God cares for us. And, and it's literally like a care for nothing. We've got too many cares. So that's what anxiety is. It's got too many cares. And Spurgeon, Spurgeon, that's why Spurgeon calls this a holy carelessness. But aren't we supposed to care? Not like this. An anxious heart keeps us from seeing God rightly. Anxiety is the opposite of reality. The Lord is near, Paul says. That's reality. Anxiety says the Lord is far. He doesn't care. He's not concerned. So someone needs to worry. Anxiety says, I need control. We, we don't have it. That's what reality says, but we do want it. Anxiety infringes on the jurisdiction of God. I must care because God doesn't. I, surely I can add days to my life by my constant worrying. But here's the reality, God is near. He is not far. In fact, not only does he care for you, but he is the only one whom by caring can add a single day to your life. How do we know this? Because he is the one who numbered all of them. He is God. You are not. And anxiety hides this truth from us. Stop trying to care for what should truly be under his care. Cast your cares, cast your anxieties on him, the scriptures say. Calvin says this, he says, ignorance of the providence of God is the cause of all impatience. And that is the reason why we are so quickly and on trivial accounts thrown into confusion and often too become disheartened because we do not recognize the fact that the Lord cares for us. So how do we do this? If we're going to endure, if we're going to stand firm, we gotta endure by thankful prayer. We have to replace anxiety with prayer. That, that sounds like really simple, right? We have to replace anxiety with prayer, but this is what God is telling us. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Even just don't worrying about anything, that sounds, that sounds impossible, um, and it might be, but maybe if you pray about everything. Calvin said our, our cares have to become the raw material for our prayers. They become the basis of the things that we pray about. So how does this work? Is it, is it down to the minutia? Is it, Lord, what taquito should I get at Whataburger? Uh, dust thou prefer bacon, egg, and cheese? Um, we can get silly with it, right? Uh, but, but if it's a care of ours, 
It is a care for him. He tells us three ways to do this. Three ways to pray. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Let's hit all three. So first, prayer. Prayer is kind of the big category. This is simply uh, talking to God, uh, worshiping him. Our Father, we love you, we praise you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We love you. Second, through petition. And then we ask him for things. This is, this is what this is, simply just asking. When you, you talk to your father, you ask him for stuff. That's who we should be. We should be askers. Don't be the kind of Christian who says, uh, surely God doesn't care about this. Why would God care about this small thing? Guess what? He's God. And, and what makes you think your big things are actually big? God is infinite. So none of it is big to him. And yet somehow all of it is big with him. Because although he is immense, he is our father. And he cares for us. And this is the point. We are nobody. We are insignificant. In the scope of creation, we are tiny. But he cares about tiny, insignificant people. The height of human arrogance, though, is when we begin to say that God can't be concerned about my things. Or even to, to suggest that it's weakness. It's weakness for me to even ask God about all these things. He wants me to figure it out. This is selfishness. This is me wanting to take something that belongs to God. Spurgeon said, anxious efforting is an intrusion into God's province. It's us playing the father when we are actually the child. But get this, prayer is not an intrusion to God. The Lord has invited you to ask for things. This means there has not ever been one single solitary wasted prayer. Ask him. He's your father. He wants to help. I don't always want to help my kids. Why? Because I'm not a perfect father. Our, our good father is not a father like us. He will always want to help. And it's, it's, in, it's in our asking, it's in this that he shows his glory by being the great giver, not the receiver. We are the receiver. This defines our relationship with God, that he gives and we receive. It gives him great glory to meet my needs, to give to me. So, so stop striving for God and ask him for things. I have needs, I, ha I need food, I need money, I need direction, I need rescue. So, so therefore I, I pray. And God, he doesn't lack those things. He doesn't lack what I lack. He has what I need. And as my father, he desires to meet my needs. So through prayer, through petition, and now we're to do these things with thanksgiving. So the logical order in my mind is we should pray, petition, ask God for things. Um, and then I can't forget to you know, say thanks after he answers me. But that's not what Paul said, right? Pray and petition with thanksgiving. So the thanksgiving is right there with it. So what are we thanking him for? If I ask you to do something for me and I immediately thank you, it's kind of presumptuous. It's almost rude, right? 
can you help me build a fence? Thank you, right? That's, that doesn't work that way, right? Um, I don't even know your answer yet. Uh, so are we, are we just thanking him for who he is? For past provision? Or is it more than that? I, I wanna say yes and yes. We thank him because he's good, because he cares for us, because we know this about him. And we thank him because he has come through for us countless times. But this can't be all. When I ask God with thanksgiving, I'm acknowledging that whatever answer he gives me is best. That to walk with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death is better than the mountaintop I asked for. This, this is confidence and this is submission. That in my, in my anxiety, I can know he will answer. And by faith, I believe that whatever answer he gives me is best. Keller says that when, when we petition God with thanksgiving, we are thanking him for the entire range of possible outcomes. And, and so if, if I don't believe uh, that God's answer, whatever it is, will be best, then I'm probably not, I probably don't know God well. I don't properly know him. The only kind of prayer that's going to replace anxiety is gonna be prayer that believes and trusts that God is wise, that he is sovereign, that he is loving and gracious to me. John Newton, the, the famous hymn writer, said, said this, this is one of my favorite quotes. It says, if you are a child of God, everything that God lets through must be necessary. Everything he doesn't let through couldn't be necessary. This, this sort of trust in God's sovereign care, it changes us. It changes how we pray. And maybe sometimes we don't feel this one, right? We're, we're going, okay, thanking God for an answer I may not like feels, it almost feels like a cop-out. But it's not because he did tell me to ask. So we do have to ask. We gotta take our needs to him. And he does delight at the requests of his children but he also wants me to trust him. He wants me to actually believe that Jesus is better. Just like we sang that Jesus is better than riches, that he is better than comfort. Then there is nothing that surpasses him. No answer is better than him. And even Jesus in his asking, what did he say? He said, not my will, but yours. So there may be many times where we join Jesus in his prayer but we ask and we thank him for however he will answer. Thanksgiving is also an, an acknowledgement of my limitation. I remember when my son Judah, who's 13 now, was, was little, uh, he, loved, he loved cars. That was big into cars. Um, Lightning McQueen, his favorite. He liked the blue car, the blue Lightning McQueen car. Um, the, thought it was the bomb, right? And and so like, like many of you, you know, with your kids, you probably talk a lot about things that God has done and things God's made. And so we would, we would, we would have this you know, little exercise, right? That we would say, just kind of, just kind of part of our daily conversation. Uh, Jesus made Lightning McQueen. And I, I think I can back that up. Um, you know, he made the people that made Lightning McQueen. Um, Jesus made Lightning McQueen. And so we talk about a lot of things Jesus made. Jesus made the sky. Jesus made trains. Then eventually we're just naming stuff in his room, right? Jesus made the closet. 
Jesus made the door. Jesus made lamp. And, and I, I still vividly remember this conversation that Judah and I had uh, where he, he kind of had this epiphany. And he realized that God made something he didn't like. So listing a few things, all these great things that God had made, um, here's the thunder outside. And he goes, God made thunder. He didn't like thunder. He's gotten used to it now. But just like Judah, we must thank God. Not just the parts of him that we like. Not just the parts of him that we understand, but we rejoice in all of him. And we thank him even for what we don't understand. If I knew why everything happened, I would be omniscient. But there is only one omniscient one. I can't even see a fraction of the big picture of my life. From where I sit, pain and suffering, they seem very unnecessary to me. Why would God do this? How could this pain, this sorrow, this suffering possibly be something to thank him for? And yet when we come to him, we're acknowledging, I don't see it all, Lord. And I'm thanking you that you are good. And I know that you know. And even if I don't understand you, thank you. And then in verse seven, he caps it off with a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a request. Like, God, please bring your peace to me. This is a promise. If we pray, he promises peace. That he will protect your heart and your mind. Your thinking and your reasoning can rest. Your desires, your affections, he's gonna protect those. And a promise isn't something that you can accomplish. If left to your own power, even prayer wouldn't solve your anxieties. We would pray and then our minds immediately would again, would be flooded again with, with thoughts of all of our cares and concerns. And this isn't even a promise that you'll have some sort of understanding or some sort of solution. Rather, God is saying, I am the solution. The peace of God, which is impossible to understand, he says, will guard your hearts and your minds. And I think this is awesome and strange that the peace of God here, peace, is being described as guarding us. It's, this is a military term. This is in Philippi. This is a military outpost. This is, this is the battalion peace of God. And, and then unexplainable contentment floods in. Now, the situation is still painful, still scary, still difficult, but the military squadron of God is on the scene. And the garrison of, of God's protective uh, protection is, is enacted, enacted and, and, and it paces in front of my mind, guarding it like an army and says, sorry, anxious thoughts. Sorry, spiraling worry. The mind of my beloved child, the thought patterns of this saint, his heart, his mind is off limits because God's peace is with you. And others won't get this. You won't even get it. How am I calm? How can I sleep? It's beyond normal understanding. This is the same piece of the martyrs, the same ones who stood before the guillotine or the flame and they were able to rest. This is the confidence in God's protecting peace that says, even if I'm destroyed, not a hair on my head will be harmed. 
And this will baffle people. This will baffle your lost friends. How are you not losing it? Because without Jesus, they're, they're in constant turmoil within. But when they see you lose a loved one, when they see you without a job, when they see you saying, I don't know how God will move in this, but he's got it and he's good. And in that I'll rejoice. There may be no greater testimony of God's care for you than when his peace rules over you in the midst of trial. And then the last thing is this, we will endure by looking to the one who endured. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellencies in anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So we don't just pray about it and go right back to WebMD. As the peace of God allows us to rest, we have something new to think about. Something new for our minds to rehearse. Instead of spinning with anxiety, we have something else to think on. Better yet, we have someone else to think about. One who is true, one who is honorable, one who is just and pure, lovely and commendable. I used to have trouble with this part of the passage because it felt a little bit like the sound of music, right? Like the raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. If I just think of my favorite things, then I won't feel so bad. Um, and and that's, that's not what this is. The Lord struck me with this this week. As the God of peace guards my mind, what do I rehearse? What do I rehearse in my mind? Is it my favorite things? Am I just gonna think about my favorite things to not feel bad? Who is good? Who is perfect but God? What good praiseworthy thing is there to think about but him? There is none good. We must continue to rehearse the excellencies of God. This means in every situation, we can consider Jesus. Whatever is true, Jesus is perfectly true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever is just, Jesus is the just one. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us. Whatever is pure, Jesus is the wisdom from God. He's pure, he's full of mercy, unwavering, without pretense. There's none more excellent, none more praiseworthy. He faced temptation and isolation. He was adored and hated. He was physically tortured and agonized, emotionally, emotionally wrought. And in all of it, he was commendable in every way. We do not have a savior who is unacquainted with our sufferings, with our cares. He understands your trials because he walked through his and he did so for you. Our perfect savior experienced the most anxiety-inducing, agonizing pain and loss imaginable. He knew he was going to experience a horrific death to be crushed, and yet he gave himself freely. So that right now, our living king, risen from the dead, can be near you in trial. So think on these things. This is who Jesus is for you. Look to him. Think on him. Take your needs to him. Even Paul said, look how I did it. Look how I had hope in my trials. Our God and our Savior, Jesus. He is the Jesus that sustained Paul and he will sustain you. And so may the God of peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are worthy, worthy of our very lives,
able to be trusted in everything. And Father, would you help us? We are an anxious people. We have many cares, many concerns, many worries that, that draw us in a hundred directions. But what we need, Father, we need you. We need to feel and know your nearness to us. We need to remember your goodness, your kindness to us. So would you help us? Would you help us not to lose heart? Would you help us to endure so that we might trust you to the end? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.